Amen. Okay, so we concluded last week. Um, if you can remember last week, we talked about the nation of Israel, their calling, and the covenant that God made with them. But we concluded last week with the nation's foretold inability to keep the Mosaic Covenant. But on its heels, we considered another promise, and that is the promise of the New Covenant. And yet, we jumped ahead in the story quite a bit. We know how the nation's um, history will unfold, but of course, there are more twists and turns to it than that. Israel proves the prophet's dire predictions, and of course, that rather soon. But what keeps their story, that is the nation of Israel, from spiraling into destruction is their God and the promises that he's made to them. So they enter into covenant. They're not able to keep the covenant, yet the one thing that keeps things from devolving into the worst of the worst is God's faithfulness. So the nation violates the covenant time and again. Remember, as soon as the covenant is cut on Mount Sinai, Moses is gone, but just for a little bit, and Aaron creates an idol for the nation to worship, and they break the covenant, right? So there it is, and yet God is unable to give them up. His mercy and his loving kindness render him incapable of turning his back on his people, even though they so justly deserve it. Um, Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, the Lord says, it's there on the screen for you, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's almost a nickname for Israel. How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah, and how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So despite it all, the nation's treachery toward the Lord, there remains hope. And so what we see is that the Mosaic Covenant, which we considered last week, is not a one-shot deal. The nation goes astray, but the divine mercy never forsakes them. God is patient with Israel, giving them every chance to keep the covenant and to secure their blessing and that of the nations too. So their whole history can play out in a series of breaking the covenant or being unfaithful to the covenant and God forgiving them, making atonement, covering their sins, and restoring them to their covenant status. Again and again, that's kind of just what happens Um, And so God's giving them all these extra opportunities to be faithful and to keep the covenant. So, from Mount Sinai, where the covenant was cut, the nation's story takes a long and winding path. There are definite triumphs in figures like Joshua and Caleb and other mighty warriors um, in the judges in that period. And then there are still worse defeats, 
also in the period of Judges, uh, before the ages of kings. Now, I could trace out a few historical details here and kind of get you an idea of how the narrative progresses, but it would be too scant to do really any good. So rather, what I want to do is direct you to Psalm 78. Now, it's there um, under the heading of uh, introduction. It's just the last few verses, so it's not going to do you much good, but we'll go through it. In Psalm 78, um, the nation's history is recorded. From its inception in the covenant, which we considered last week, to the point at which we arrive today, God's election of David. So, Psalm 78 traces the nation's history from its beginning at Mount Sinai to the point which we come today, which is God's election of David. Now, if you think I've taken a pessimistic stance on the nation's history, now it's true, sometimes we're too hard on Israel. Um, Read the psalmist's words. Read Psalm 78. He tells the story as if it were nothing but a series of idolatry and whoredoms, each one more scandalous than the next. So I'll read you um, a smattering of, of verses here from Psalm 78. Verses 10 and 11, it says, They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His ways. They forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. And again, we progress further in the nation's history. Verses 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. And lastly, moving still forward in the nation's history, they tempted, this is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not following through here. Um, There you go on the screen. Uh, Verse 56 and 57, they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers, they turned aside like a treacherous bow. So literally like a bow which one would draw back to fire, but that was warped. Israel would never shoot straight. They would always miss the mark. And so if at least you don't get the historical details of where we arrived in the Mosaic Covenant, where we were last week to where we arrived today, at least you get the theological point that's being made. And it's one that we have already made. The nation's relationship with its God is marked by, on the one hand, their treachery, and on the other, His humble mercy. And as the psalmist tells it, it's one rather bleak picture until... The man, the king, is raised up to the throne. So, Psalm 78, if you were to read through all 70-something verses, not good, not good, not good, not good, unfaithfulness, 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 until, until we arrive at this figure of King David. So, you have part of the verses there on the screen, Um, are on your paper. I didn't add them on the PowerPoint, my own fault. So I'll read it to you. It says, Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep. 
like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backward. He put them on an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but the tribe of Judah, um, most, uh, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant. That's where we pick up on your paper. And took him from the sheepfolds for the care of ewes, from the care of ewes with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd his people and, his, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with the skillfulness of his hand. So suddenly, the nation's story takes a dramatic uptick in David, the king who is raised to his throne from the shepherd's fields. God awakes from his sleep, as it were, The psalmist says, as a warrior overcome by wine, to drive back his enemies and to call a man, to call King David. So, in the psalmist's narration of of Israel's history, one gets the sense that, once again, something momentous is happening, right? We kind of felt that a little bit in the Mosaic Covenant, and how the, the curse of sin was being repealed, in a sense, in everything that came along with the Mosaic Covenant. Now here, we have the sense that something like that is happening again. It, we, we left the heights of Mount Sinai. We've come into the valley of the nation's history since then. And now we're going back up to another mountain in King David. So... God is interrupting that downward march, um, and he's propelling his path forward, his plan forward. And if you look at the biblical story, that's kind of how things go. Um, It's bad for a long time, and then something totally unexpected, um, utterly momentous happens, and the plan takes a massive jump forward. We see that um, in what we've already considered, And we'll see that as well when we get to the New Testament. It's the series of dramatic interventions. And so here with King David is where we arrive today, and more specifically, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. Um, Now, prior to the incarnation, this is the last covenant that God makes with his people. This is the last covenant before the redemptive plan is brought to its completion. And if we look back over the biblical story this far, thus far, we've um, after uh, the garden, we've centered on three covenants. The covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that God made with the nation Israel, and now the covenant that God makes with King David. The one covenant we didn't really look at is the covenant that God makes with Moses, but we kind of touched that in Sunday's messages, so you know, we don't need to take a detour there. So, the plan moves forward in these covenants, and um, as has been the case thus far, our ever-familiar themes, temple, kingdom, seed, blessing, are taken up and developed even further in the Davidic covenant. In fact, um, 
prior to Christ, they come to their most complete expression here in the calling of David. So, we'll move forward now into the actual covenant itself, but I want to stop and just make sure that we are all on... um, Okay, we're all on the same page. I got my PowerPoint way messed up. Um, That we're all on the same page regarding where we're at in the story right now. Are there any questions about how we got here, the narrative, refresher, any details that we just want to bring up? Yes? You mentioned seed right after you said blessed. Yes. Was that last week? So actually, the seed would have gone um, all the way back to Genesis 3, okay. where um, the woman is going to have a child, a seed, who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. So that's Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Yes. And so for the most part, that theme has kind of dropped out of the picture. We, we've touched on it a little bit in uh, the calling of Abraham, but almost not at all last week with Israel. Any other questions? Okay, so we're all up to speed. All right. So we enter King David's story at the height of his triumph. From his humble station as a shepherd, the least among his brothers. You guys remember when uh, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. And he takes his horn of oil with him. And the most impressive brother, I forget his name. Um, what, what is it? Okay, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't confirm. Um, anyway, Samuel sees him. He's like, this is the king. And the Lord says, nope, I rejected him. And then down the line, every brother. And then the Lord tells Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance. That's how he judges God. God looks at the heart. And so he says, there's got to be another son. And they call him in. And you guys know David's story. And then he goes to defeat Goliath. It's interesting. We tell the Goliath story like, you know, we're defeating our enemies. We're, you know, it's like this inspirational story for us. It's, It's a story about Christ. They're the focus of the story of, um, of Goliath is on his head. If you read the story, it keeps coming back to his head, his head, his head, his head. And what does David do? He launches his rock with his sling, sinks it into the, the giant's head, and he goes down, and he chops his head off. It's an image going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed is going to crush the head of the serpent, but he's going to bruise his heel. It's kind of a metaphor of what's going on there, right? It's, it's a typology of the coming seed, right? So we like to talk about our own victories and all the great things we can do like David, but it's really, it's really about Christ, that story, and the, the coming victory that he will establish. Anyway, you guys know David's story. From there, he's raised up to the throne. He deals with Samuel, or Saul, rather, his father-in-law, who tries to kill him, and he faithfully... Um, serves Saul and evades danger, and Saul ends up dying in battle. David ascends to the throne. Um, so he's bested his enemies, both foreign and domestic, and he's brought rest to the nation. Um, as we enter the story, it's a time of peace and prosperity, and um, resting David is in his newly constructed um, home, something of a palace. The text tells us 
2 Samuel 7. Actually, if you want to turn there, we're going to be, um, I'll have the verses on the screen, but sometimes it helps to see it for yourself um, in your own Bibles. It's 2 Samuel 7. Um, We're going to be spending the majority of our time here. It says, uh, verses 2 and 3, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within a tent of curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So, King David recognizes the obvious incongruity of the situation. He dwells in his house of cedar, And the ark, the place of God's dwelling, is a curtained tent, right? By this time, probably worn out pretty good. It's been um, at least a few hundred years since the um, cutting of the covenant at Sinai and the constructing of the tabernacle. So what he wants to do is take the tabernacle, um, again, the place of God's, uh, or God's dwelling place, um, and he wants to transform it into a full, full-blown temple. He wants to take uh, God's presence that had been roaming, kind of no permanent dwelling, and build a lavish temple. And so let's pause for a minute just and consider uh, what David's doing, and let's return to our central themes. Now, I think it's quite obvious if we dig a little bit into David's situation, um, what themes are at play here. Um, And there's two, really, that I want to uh, get into. You guys have any inclination? Uh, David is a king. So there's the obvious one, right? He's he's, uh, taking up humanity's royal vocation. And what else is he doing? He's building a temple. So there's humanity's priestly vocation, right? Genesis 1, we have both of them kind of um, coming together in David. And so what I want us to see is that something unique is happening with King David. Um, Something that hasn't happened before, um, at least partially. The two roles um, are merging. We haven't had... um, We'll get to it. We haven't had, for the most part, uh, a king who is also a priest, a priest who is also a king. There was kind of a division of power there, right? They weren't allowed to serve in the same role. So David is the king, and here he functions in a priestly role constructing the temple. Now, like I said, those two roles were kept uh, separate from one another, except one mysterious figure um, who precedes David in uniting both roles. Anybody know the priest king earlier on in the scripture narrative? Melchizedek, that's right. Now, I really wish we had some time to consider his story um, for all of its significance. Um, We'll cover it briefly. The important thing to note about him is that he was both a king and a priest. So the text reads, um, it's very short when we're introduced to Melchizedek. It's uh, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 and 20. Um, It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
Now he was a priest of the Most High God. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the king, or, uh, best be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this figure, Melchizedek, is king of Salem. Now there are two things to note. Literally translated, his title means king of peace. Salem, shalom, somehow that works out in the Hebrew. It's confirmed in Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. If you like to read that, it's all about Melchizedek. And the place of which he is king over, Salem, is widely recognized as ancient Jerusalem. So, a priest king reigns in Jerusalem and serves Abraham bread and wine, and he blesses him. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> right. Now, I don't want to get too uh, ahead in the story, but for now, our focus is upon David and not his greater descendant to come. There are other passages appealed to, but as our passage portrays it, David is a not quite, but very similar Melchizedek another priest king who rules in Jerusalem. Now, if we were to go back into Samuel, I would show you that um, it begins with Eli, the priest. That's where the story starts. And he's a bad priest. He's really not at all attentive. He's got two really bad sons who are, are just making a mockery of everything going on. And basically what happens is that God visits Eli and says, your line, of your priestly line, is coming to an end. You guys will not serve in my house any longer. And so that original line that was established in Aaron and his descendants and then culminating in Eli is cut off. And then God says he wants to establish a new line, a, a, a new um, uh, uh, reign of priests. Now, Later on in, in the scriptures, Aaron still remains significant and his priestly line remains significant, but um, he cuts it off. And so we're expecting in Samuel kind of a new priest, right? Someone to take that mantle. And when we're introduced to David, obviously, and then as we come later on in his life, especially here in 2 Samuel 7, we're getting the idea, the new line. So, something new is going on. And of course, it's this man in whom the kingship and the priesthood um, come very near to one another. Now, David's not a priest. We can't go that far. But still, there's something very priestly about what he's doing. And if you rewind from 2 Samuel 7 to 2 Samuel 6, if you read that passage, David brings the ark into Jerusalem. He goes dancing before the ark. Remember, his wife doesn't like that. Um, and she despised him in his heart, in her heart. But uh, he goes dancing before the ark, celebrating, and it makes a clear note about his dress, about uh, his attire, and he's wearing a linen ephod, right? What a priest would wear. So it's depicting him as a priest, and then now here he wants to put the temple together or to build a temple. But his plans to construct a temple are interrupted. So the prophet Nathan, um, he gave his immediate validation. He says, whatever's in your heart, go do it. God's with you. And then that night, God visits Nathan and instructs him to give the king these words. Now, 
They're quite long. Um, so if you're there in your Bible, we're going to pick up in verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. I don't expect any of you to be able to read that on the screen. So it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And there's a lot here, and we just want to take it piece by piece. Now, immediately, what stands out is that the promise is made to David, but really, more primarily to David's descendant. Singular, not plural. I will raise up your descendant after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'm reading the New American Standard Bible. It translates that as descendant. Does anyone have anything else? I didn't look it up, but... Maybe. In seconds, I don't know the actual verse. I'm sorry. Maybe, let me. Verse 12. Okay. Yeah, that's a, I, I uh, cut out a piece there. What do you have? See, anybody else reading? Any, yeah, and so, and it's, uh, so if you're reading the New King James or the King James Version, it'll read C. And of course, the promise according to descendant is quite suggestive. Um, it's colored with tones of the Abrahamic covenant, but of course, it's all the more suggestive in turning to the original language. Language. Our translators have chosen descendant or offspring. And again, that's fine, but it misses the interrelatedness of the Davidic covenant with um, other passages, very important ones. So, as the New King James or the King James reads, I will raise up your seed after you. So, our minds 
should be making connections with passages that we've already treated. Now, principally two of them. Um, the first is the primordial gospel promise in the Genesis accounts and the Abrahamic covenant. So, you remember God's words, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, singular, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So in the story's very beginning, God promised that a messianic seed would come from the woman, the uh, mother of all living, to crush the serpent. And here, toward the story's end, a promise is made directly to that seed that it would inherit an everlasting kingdom. So the promise is made to David, but more specifically to his seed. That should take us back to Genesis 3. So the coming deliverance is taking shape. The seed, we might say, is developing in the nation's womb. And you remember the promise that was attached to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So thus far, it's been our understanding that the entire nation is the promise-bearing seed, right? We've traced the development of the, that initial promise in Genesis 3 out to the nation Israel. They're the, the seed of Abraham who... Uh, bears this promise to bless the nations. But here that promise is made to the king, and it's centralized upon one descendant. So we've been thinking the entire nation. Now we're thinking again of one person. So it's one seed, not many, that the blessing will come to the nations, through which the blessing will come to the nations. So again, it's almost like we're looking at an ultrasound. The picture is gray and hazy, but that seed, the promised salvation, is taking shape. It's, it's developing. It's becoming clear. And here, the nature of the promise made to the king comes to the fore. It's obviously a development and a further um, explication of the promises made to Abraham. So, uh, one commentator um, in his book, A House for My Name, taken directly from the passage which we're looking at, he says, God tells Abraham that his seed will bless the nations. And now David learns that his seed will, that this seed, rather, will come from him. All the promises of God to Abraham are now delivered to David so that the future of Israel is bound up with David's household. So two things going on there, one which we'll look at in just a second, and one we'll come to later. Promises of Abraham, first, are delivered to David and to his seed. And secondly, the future of Israel is bound up with the Davidic um, uh, household, with the Davidic lineage. And as the story progresses... Um, especially when we get into the age of kings, it's all about the line of David and our kings being faithful like their father David was. 
So it all revolves around, everything revolves around what comes from this moment. Now, um, the promises of David, or the promises of Abraham are delivered to David, and this is confirmed in another element of the covenant. God promises to make King David's name uh, great upon the earth. He says, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now, almost verbatim, those are the very words that he spoke to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great. So again, here, same thing being promised to David. So the Davidic promise, a king and an everlasting kingdom is taken up and expanded in other passages. Um, I've got them listed there at the bottom of... uh, that section on the Davidic covenant. So if you want to read more about, the, um, about God's plan with David, go to Psalm 2, uh, go to Psalm 72, which we're going to look at now, and then Psalm 110. There's other ones, I believe Psalm 89. It's just all over the Psalms. It's all over the prophets. And if you know what you're looking for, you'll see it um, all over the place. So, This promise is delivered to David, and then it's expanded later on in the story. Um, But we want to look at just one of those. Um, Again, I want to encourage you to read all of Psalm 72 on your own. It's certainly worth the time. Um, But we want to focus on one verse, and that's verse 17. It's on the screen. Um, It says, speaking of this king, may his name endure forever. May his great name increase as long as the sun shines. So there's part of the covenant, right? I'm going to make you a great name. So may his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Um, Actually, to take a step back, if we just think about Christ as the fulfillment of these prophecies, this is talking about him. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. That's our mission, to see the name of Jesus increase as long as the sun shines. And then it says, And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. So the element of the name is repeated, um, but here another element is added, or at least it's expanded upon, and that is the king's rule, this kingdom that is promised to the seed, is universalized. So we're told in 2 Samuel 7, that it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. Now here we're told, um, I'll read it again, and let men bless themselves by him, let all nations call him blessed. If you read Psalm 2, right, he is ruling the nations with a rod of iron. So the king's kingdom is a universal kingdom. It's going to encompass the entire world. And so to put it another way, it's the Abrahamic promise the blessing to the nations coming to its realization. So how are the nations going to be blessed? Remember, that's been the question that we've been asking since the very beginning. How are the nations going to be blessed? Well, here, they're going to be blessed in this everlasting, universal kingdom. That's how they'll be blessed. The king will come from the Davidic line, and he will rule from Jerusalem, the holy city. Uh, Stephen Dempster, Dominion and Dynasty, he um, 
elaborates. He says, from this one location in world geography and this one person in world genealogy will flow the blessing of the entire world and its inhabitants, of the entire world and its inhabitants. This is the theme that reverberates through the rest of the Bible. Um, And surely there's more to consider uh, in regard to the Davidic covenant, but we'll touch upon one last thing, and that is the king's intentions are turned back on him. So he wanted to build a house for God, but instead God halts his plan and says, I'm going to build a house for you. Um, and he does that in the line uh, in, by raising up this descendant. And of course, the coming redemption would bear his name, the name of David, forever. Um, read Romans chapter 1. It introduces Christ to us, and it says that he is, well, I'll read it. Romans chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised to me beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared, so on and so forth, right? David's name, a little bit like Mary and her attachment to the gospel, is there forever. Um, This is the house that God builds for him. Um, Name an ancient king, right, that even compares to David in this respect. There there is, there's not even one. It doesn't compare. So, um, the king isn't permitted to construct a temple, but this task is given to his seed. So, there's a seed who's coming, and it says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, well, we'll wait. We'll wait. Okay, so once again, the ultrasound reveals a more developed redemptive plan. We have three things now. The seed king, the blessing to come through his kingdom, and a new temple. A king, a temple, and a kingdom. That sounds a lot like the way things were at the beginning, doesn't it? And so at last, in the Davidic promise, we have a silhouette, a discernible shape and form to this long-promised restoration and victory. When the seed comes, we'll know what to look for. I want to kind of pivot a little bit and talk more about some other things, but I just want to stop there first and just make sure We're all on the same page. Any questions about the promise made to David, the covenant, um, and and kind of what's expected to come through him? Okay, we're all on the same page? All right, awesome. So, when the seed comes, we know what to look for. King, kingdom, temple. I just... I want to get ahead in the story. That's, that's Christ. That's, that's Christ. That's exactly what he does. Or you could say, in other words, we're going to be looking for someone like Melchizedek. Right? We talked about him just a moment ago. The seed is going to look a lot like him, a priest king ruling over his universal kingdom. Now, anybody have an idea what the most quoted passage, Old Testament passage in the New Testament is? Most quoted, more than any other passage. Okay, it's not one we'd expect. 
It's Psalm 110. Right? There's a lot of very familiar Old Testament passages to us um, that come up again and again. We'd maybe think something like Psalm, I mean, uh, Isaiah 58, or 53, rather, or maybe Psalm 22, um, maybe those very explicit messianic passages. But in fact, the passage that's quoted the most is Psalm 110. I preached on this, if you guys want to go back, um, a few years ago. It may not be on the website. We updated it. If you need it, if you want it, let me know. I can get it to you. But I preached this on Ascension Day. We talked about Psalm 110. And I'll just read the whole thing for you. Sounds like some of you are turning there now. It's only seven verses. It says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, it's a little confusing what's going on here. But it's David speaking. So it's David saying, The Lord says to my Lord. So God says to my Lord, God's talking to another Lord who David calls my Lord. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, Again, the psalm is being penned, is penned by David. And it's a spirit-inspired interpretation of the Davidic covenant. So the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, speaks to one whom David calls my Lord. So the seed who's to come from David as the king is both his son, i.e. it's his descendant, he's going to come from David, but curiously, this seed is also his Lord. Um, and if you read, I believe it's Matthew 22, um, the Lord gets into a squabble with the, with the Pharisees, and he questions them on this very thing. He says, if he's David's son, then how is he also his Lord? And they couldn't answer. Now, of course, we know how David could say, this is my son, but also my Lord, the incarnation. So, and he rules... Um, this coming king, not merely from Jerusalem, but at God's right hand. Um, now, of course, you could probably interpret that to mean Jerusalem, but something more significant is going on there. And lastly, he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So in other words, the coming seed is a priest, not from Aaron's line, but from another line, the one descending straight back to the king of Salem. So, there are many wonderful things present in this psalm. Um, it really is a messianic gold mine. And uh, I could use it to make a very good argument for Christendom and kind of a, 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 a political theology about the church. But I'll leave it to you to plummet steps. My intention here is that you have an ever clearer picture about the coming king and his kingdom. And actually, before we get to Christ, I do just want to mention 
that these promises, as they're fulfilled in Christ, are, um, they are transfigured a bit, right? They're not just fulfilled in the plain sense. They're ramped up to a whole other degree, um, way more than what was originally expected. Um, yet, we lose the, we lose, and I think we lose something essential when we lose the political nature of what's going on here, right? A king and a kingdom, and this king is going to rule over the nations. He's going to, he, he's going to conquer them. He's going to make a conquest, right? That's inherent in the gospel. Now, we miss that when we, you know, man was created, he fell, Jesus came, we get the golden ticket to heaven. It's like, it's just, it's too flat, the narrative. There, it's, the gospel's so much fuller, and that political dimension uh, of, of, of ruling is lost if we fall into that, you know, other flat narrative. Um, and so when we get to Christ next week, I, I do want to, and, and we come to the kingdom and the church, I do want to at least a little bit highlight that, but it's something to think about because the church has its own politics. We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I'm going off on my own thing now. So we get a picture of what's to come, the coming king and his kingdom, and it is awesome. This is my favorite of all the covenants is the Davidic covenant because, I mean, how can it not be? So what I want to do now is uh, come to the next part um, and take a look at Solomon. So the immediate referent to the coming seed is David's son, um, and, it, it, and that's Solomon. Um, David goes to be with his fathers. He goes to the grave, and Solomon takes the throne. And you guys remember, um, we've already looked at it in our first lecture, um, Solomon doesn't know how to rule, and God's, God visits him and basically says, ask whatever you want, and he asks for wisdom. And so the Lord gives him wisdom to discern between good and evil that he might rule his people well. And so the most notable thing about Solomon as a king is that he has this remarkable, unprecedented wisdom. First Kings chapter 4, verse 29 notes this. It says, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Uh, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. I cut out a little piece there. It talks about Solomon's wisdom, and he knows all about the trees and the animals, and he wrote 10,000 or 1,000 proverbs, or 10,000 proverbs and 1,000 songs, and he, he's just, he, you know, you can't even compare him, and obviously everyone is coming in to hear from him. So in Solomon's wisdom, right, you guys should know where I'm going with this, it takes us back to humanity's royal vocation. Humans were commissioned to rule as the divine image on the earth, and they subsequently needed wisdom to carry out their task. That's all what, remember the garden and the two trees and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That's what it's all about. It represents their vocation, right, to rule. 
And so Solomon, in this sense, far surpasses Adam. Adam was created to rule, but his rule was never realized, right? It was taken from him before he ever got the shot. And he never learned wisdom, right? He took of the tree. Um, his eyes were open, but that doesn't mean he learned wisdom. He learned his own nakedness, and he learned shame, and he learned guilt. So the tree was forbidden to Adam, but it's made available to Solomon. He asks for what? The knowledge of good and evil. That's what he asks for, and God says, it's yours. So Solomon gets to eat from the tree. Solomon gets to do something that not even Adam got to do. He learns wisdom. And what is that wisdom for? That he might rule the nation in truth and justice. So as soon as Solomon is given wisdom, the story after that, what happens? Remember the two women come to him? And one of them, you know, guys, you can read it, uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. Anyway, Solomon decides, and it says something to the effect that the nation feared him and his, something to the effect that they revered his wisdom. So there it is, right? He, he's, he's a ruler, a wise ruler. And Solomon's wisdom is a blessing to the nations. So we have the Adam theme recapitulated there. And then we now have the Abraham theme recapitulated. Because in his wisdom, Solomon becomes a blessing to the nations. Now, the most obvious example here is the Queen of Sheba. Um, she's the Queen of Egypt. And she comes to visit Solomon to hear about his wisdom. And the scripture says that she tested him with riddles and dark sayings. And the passage says that he answered her all questions. He answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. So she comes to test him, to stump him. Again, we should, we should be thinking Christ here, right? Um, prior to Jesus' death, the, the last week of his life, the Pharisees are like the Queen of Sheba, constantly coming to pester Jesus with these, you know, unsolvable questions. Well, what do we do about taxes? What about divorce? This, that, and the other. And then finally, Jesus just schools them all, and it says that no one was... No one had the nerve anymore to ask him. It's, that's what's going on here. Um, so she, she stops, obviously. And then um, this is one of the coolest passages. Um, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 4 through 9. It says, When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters, and all their attire, his cupbearers, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report when I heard my, in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard, how blessed are your men, how blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. So King Solomon, in his wisdom, is a blessing to the nations. 
The pagan nations, here specifically the Queen of Sheba, are coming to learn his ways. And in truth, they're learning the ways of God and they're blessing his name. She, she, she says, blessed be the Lord your God. So in Solomon's wisdom, the other nations are recognizing and subsequently learning the ways of God. And so at the height of his power, um, the scripture says of King Solomon, this is later on in the chapter, this is on your paper. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Right? That's the Abrahamic promise. Everyone coming to hear Solomon's wisdom, to come seek his blessing and the blessing of the Lord. And moreover, so we have the, the Adam element, we have the Abraham element, and another part to the Abraham element now is that the land that was promised to the nation in the Abrahamic covenant is secured by King Solomon. 1 Kings 4.21 says, Now Solomon ruled over the kingdom, over all the kingdoms from the river um, to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought, the tribute, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So those are the borders of Solomon. Now these were the ones promised to Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram before his name was changed, saying, To your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So there it is. The land promised to Abraham is um, taken by Solomon. He has at least most of it, a, a great chunk of it. And lastly, and probably his greatest achievement, uh, Solomon's, is the construction of the temple. He reigns as king, endowed with wisdom from above. The nations bless him and pay tribute to him. He secures the borders of the promised nation, of the promised land, and he constructs a temple for sacrifices and offerings. So virtually all our themes converge in this one man, right? And, and so he's, he's being portrayed quite explicitly as a fulfillment of all the covenants, all the promises that were made to the people. And so there's an expectation that's set upon Solomon. Um, and this is the height of the nation Israel. It never gets better than this in all their story. And so the question is, is Solomon the promised seed? I mean, are we here? Have we arrived? Um, is this the salvation we're looking for? And yet, for all his glory, and it's substantial, he attains the promises, but only partially. So there are real sun rays that uh, break through the clouds, but the clouds still remain. And of course, this is no more evident than in Solomon's own life. In large part, the promises come to expression in him, but later on in his reign, he turns into an idolater. Um, you guys are familiar with Solomon's story. He multiplied, multiplied wives and concubines somewhere in the 1,000 range. Um, don't know how that one flies. but um, And because of that, his heart was turned away from God, and he too broke the covenant. 
he set up altars to other gods, and he sacrificed at them. And Solomon's story is a terribly tragic one. It's almost its own fall, a repeat of the fall. And so the promise is, despite all that came through Solomon, still await a fulfillment. And so we said that the nation's history is, de, is tied up with the Davidic line. And that's the way the story progresses. Because we're thinking the seed is going to come through one of David's descendants. One king is raised up, and he dies. Another king is raised up. Each time, the question is raised, is this the promised seed? Is this the one we're expecting? And from Solomon on, it's largely a disaster. Shortly after he dies, the kingdom undergoes civil war and splits in two because uh, Solomon's son has nowhere near the wisdom that he does. He raises taxes, and it enforces a civil war. And the two, the nation is split in two, and now you have two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and They've got their own kings. One is the king, the, the, the line of David. The other is another, its own line. So the promises aren't going to come through that one. And then the story progresses, one king after another. And read 1 Kings and 2 Kings. They're all terrible, except for a few. Uh, Uzziah, Hezekiah. Um, I'm missing one here. Uh, oh, Josiah. There's these dramatic revivals under the good kings, but it's, it's bad. And, of course, what happens? It ends in exile. That's what we talked about last week. That was, that was the stipulation of the covenant. If you obey, you'll be blessed. And that was centralized even more in the Davidic king. And so basically where the king goes, the nation goes. And as the kings get worse and worse, finally the Lord says, all right, it's over. And first what happens is the northern kingdom, Israel, gets conquered by the empire of Assyria and taken into exile. And not too long after that, Babylon comes for the southern kingdom and takes them into exile. And at last, the predictions that were made at the nation's inception have come to pass. The people that were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, think of the heights to which they were called, have now brought themselves into exile. Now, we know how the story ends, but to kind of get a sense of what's going on here, this is, well, actually read Isaiah 40. Basically, the nation had given up hope. Um, Isaiah 40 is, is, is the gospel, really, but it's the Lord's announcement that he's going to bring the captives back out of, um, out of exile. And basically the whole thing is the Lord saying, I haven't given up on you. Do you think anything's too hard for me? Do you think that I can't subdue the king of Babylon and bring you back out? Um, so they'd given up. They... they, they all hope was lost. You read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, um, you read some of the other minor prophets who, taught, who oversee the exile, and it's the same thing. Um, it's bleak. Those are, those are hard, hard books to read because it's all about 
right before the nation is going to go into exile. So, not good. And uh, we'll move quickly through this last one. So it's largely during this time, as the nation is hastening toward exile, that the prophetic tradition arises. So Moses was a prophet, but then prophets, for the most part, kind of disappear for a while. And then it's when the people get into the land and the kings start to come that the prophets really enter the picture. Um, So from among the people, God raises up men, um, and in other cases, women, though we don't have their writings, um, to speak his word to the people. Um, So on the one hand, to call them back to obedience. One of my favorite terms for the prophets is, is covenant watchdogs. Basically, they're there to accuse Israel. You're breaking the covenant. Come back to the Lord. So they're calling them back to obedience. And on the other hand, they're there to warn them of disobedience. If you don't obey, if you don't repent, you're going to go into exile. So their vocation as prophets is a really terrible one. Um, God knows that the nation will not come to repentance with the exception of a few remarkable cases, again, under certain good kings. And um, the prophets are called to essentially um, oversee um, the nation on its road toward exile. Um, And they're there to witness against the nation. And so the most prominent among these uh, prophet figures is Isaiah. And I just want to read um, God's commission to him. It's Isaiah chapter 6, and it's verses 9 through 13. It says, He said, go, tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Render their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without habitation, or inhabitant, rather, Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So the prophet Isaiah is commissioned to preside and in some sense hasten the kingdom's downfall. Uh, His testimony is intended to harden the people in their disobedience until the land is utterly desolate and the covenant curse has run its course. So the kingdom, both the north and the south, will be felled, yet a stump will remain. So in other words, the kingdom's going to be cut down almost to nothing. The promise is seemingly scraped from the earth, but... Hope remains in this holy seed. God has not utterly forsaken his people. Stephen Dempster, let's just actually skip that because we need to move quicker here. So in the exile, the kingdom is reduced to a stump, and yet it's a holy stump. Now this rightly describes the nation's experience um, during and after exile. It survives, the nation does, and even thrives in foreign lands, There is a purity uh, that is somewhat restored to the nation, but it never returns to its former glory. Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt too, but they pale in comparison to what they were before under David and Solomon. In fact, we learn in Nehemiah that 
when the new temple is constructed and the elders who had seen the former temple see this temple, they wept. And not for joy, but for sadness because it was nothing like what it was before. So the formal fruitful, former fruitful tree has been felled, but a stump remains, and more importantly, the roots of that stump. The promises have not been revoked. If we're learning any lesson about the nation of Israel and God's covenant with them is his faithfulness. There's judgment, there's, uh, there's cursing that comes upon them, but beneath that is always God's faithfulness. And so from that stump, um, uh, beneath the soil remains room for the seed to sprout once again. And it's not surprising that during this time of the exile that the nation's hopes um, are revived. In the prophets, during the time of the exile, the promises come to an altogether unprecedented height. It seems that in the nation's deepest depths, the promises come to their most complete expression. Now, if we had time, I'd survey these passages. Isaiah 40 mentioned it, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Daniel 7, Joel 2, etc., etc. All about what God is going to do. But for our purposes, I'd like to draw our time together to a close uh, by considering one passage in the Old Testament, and that's Isaiah 11. That's a popular passage. Um, um, Christmas one. But it, and the reason I'm selecting it is because it has every theme that we've considered thus far. So we're just going to do a quick little rundown here. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So from the remnant, the stump that has survived... You could picture it, um, like if you cut down a cottonwood still, they'll shoot up branches. Um, there's going to be a branch that's going to come out of the stump of Jesse. And that's significant that he calls it the stump of Jesse because Jesse was David's father. But the promises weren't made to Jesse, they were made to David. So why not just say that the shoot is going to come from the stump of David? Why, why go to Jesse? Well, the passage goes to Jesse and not to David to make a very important point. The coming king is not just another king in David's line. He's not as great. He's not just like Josiah or Uzziah or Hezekiah, great kings. Instead, this king is another David. We're not following David's line. We're going back to Jesse, and we're getting a whole new David. If you read um, Ezekiel chapters 30, I think it's 34 and 35. It's in the 30 range. Um, listen to all the language about my servant David, and what he's going to come to do. So we're getting a new David. Um, we'll skip another quote. Now down to um, Isaiah eleven two, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So here we're told that the spirit, um, the one at the beginning who hovered over the waters, will rest on this shoot from the stump of Jesse in an unprecedented manner, sevenfold. Um, and of course, that signifies perfection. So we get another David upon whom the Spirit rests in a manner um, unprecedented before this. We continue, verses 3 and 5, 
and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what, he's, what his eyes see, nor make any decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So the shoot will judge and rule the earth, but with a particular concern for the poor and the afflicted. Okay, pictures are becoming clear. And uh, almost toward the end now, verses 6 through 9, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them as the cow and the bear, also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Two things, quickly. We're back at Eden. We're back in the garden. No violence, not even the animals, and specifically a cobra, a serpent. It's not going to hurt the little kid. It's not going to, we don't have to fear. Uh, The enmity between the man or the woman's seed and the serpent's seed is gone. Also, we're also talking about uh, the temple. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, right? That's taking us back to the Garden of Eden on the holy mountain. Um, So, you see the picture of this coming king. And then lastly, verse 10. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The Abrahamic promise. The nations are going to go to the root of Jesse. So, if I can quickly summarize what we've learned thus far. After the fall, things pick up in Abraham, and then again in Israel. There's going to be failure in Israel. But there's this promised seed from the line of David. And now everything, everything hinges on this one seed. All that we've built, this massive story, is on, upon the shoulders of this one figure. And if you read the prophets from here on out, that's what you get, right? It, it, it narrows incredibly. It either talks about the king from Jesse, or it talks about the servant, or so on and so forth. But... You get the point. Um, And that brings us to Christ, where we've got a big task ahead of us next week, and that's to take everything we've learned and to tie it up in Jesus Christ and then 